This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the host and producer of Poured Over, and I am so excited. I'm actually giddy as we take this show because Margot Jefferson has been a writer that I've been reading for a very long time, and I never, ever walk away from a Jefferson piece without learning something new. And I have to say, I've been listening to so much Bud Powell and Nina Simone and Marvin Gaye while I was prepping for this show. Margot's new book is Constructing a Nervous System. And I'm so excited to see you this morning. Thank you so much. Oh, mutual excitement. (laughs) Thank you. I love this metaphor and I love this title, Constructing a Nervous System. Can we start with that? We can. And I first have to, since this book is filled with other people's words, note that this title came out of a conversation I had with a writer friend, Wendy Walters. We were talking about, I was complaining, this is so hard. This was a few years ago. I don't know. What am I going to do? And I don't know what I'm doing. And she said, you know, I understand that. I totally feel how hard it is. I said, okay, tell me why. And she said, well, it's like constructing a nervous system. And I thought, oh, I can live with that. You know, that was the frame. That was the, you know, <laughs> the soft pillow in a way I needed to rest on. So I kind of went back and looked at my Grey's, not my Grey's Anatomy, my old my old anatomy books and went online. And I thought, oh, okay, yes, this really does work. It works both in terms of the openly, I'm involved with the arts. I love it. I'm reliving parts of the book and with the parts that are being forced to engage with my own, you know, temperamental complexities, let's just say, as we all have. Here we are, we struggle through life with our, and we move through sometimes happily our nervous systems. We can tweak them, but you know, they're these fixed things that we're given at birth. There is also though, there is this private culture that we are making for ourselves, that we're taking in at every moment. And, you know, yes, there's our family, there's there's the town we live in, you know, there are all these psychologically entwined narratives. psychoanalysis, sociology, you know, all of, but there are these particular stories. They might be narratives, they might be free associative, it might be collage of parts of us that are awakened, aroused, repelled in some way that is fascinating by anything from a little piece of ephemera, you know, from some gesture, you know, you see in an actor to some great work of art, but it's all reconfiguring or can be reconfigured inside us. Sometimes simply by the fact that you age, you know, (laughs) or you go through some vast extreme experience. We all as writers know those books that we could barely manage at a certain point of our life that suddenly become or that eventually become critical. Well, in tiny, you know, microscopic It might be a word. It might be, you know, a drawing in tiny microscopic ways. Those ways, those changes are always taking place inside us. And that's really what I wanted to track. It also had to do with this sense, conviction I've had uh, more and more, probably since I stopped doing reviewing regularly, that one just has to stay open to these difficult for a critic responses and emotions like vulnerability, like uncertainty, like ambiguity. How do you write interestingly about 
feeling I, I, I'm not, I don't know that I'm, I'm up to this piece of work that I just saw on his stage last night. It's asking things of me that um, I wasn't ready to give or that are new to me. How do you turn that into prose that doesn't simplify, make sure that you somehow are still in a position of traditional power? I've mastered this. So, you know, all of those responses and feelings that are so much a part of you know every fiction writer, every playwright, every poet uses that. We critics use it indirectly, but I want it sometimes, but I wanted to use all of that directly, which would also help keep a sense of momentum going in the book. One of the things that I love about this new book too, is you talk about how you're pursuing the dissonance and you want to sit with the dissonance. And I always think of that, honestly, as the writer's job, because you're sitting either with characters that you've created or characters you've witnessed, whether that's in visual art or on the page or on the screen or yeah, listening. Yeah. Yes, yes. So you're balancing this idea of witnessing yes. in a way. As a critic, you're translating, and not just a critic, I should say as a writer, because that is ultimately your job, and you're sitting in this dissonance. And you're thinking about how you're going to translate experience. And you need to still capture the movement of the experience. You need to capture the moment it changes you, which means you actually have to give something up to your audience that you might not be prepared for. And you've talked about memoir and the difficulty of writing memoir. Constructing a nervous system is not a traditional memoir. It's it, To me, it's a work of literary criticism. It's a work of, it's so much bigger than memoir, but... You can't separate who you are as a writer and a person from the work that you choose to do. You know, I almost titled, well, subtitled it, mm -hmm. a cultural memoir instead of mm -hmm. a memoir. And that's mm -hmm. really the form that I found I could work in. Um, mm -hmm. I actually didn't want with Negroland and certainly not with this, particularly when people would say, well, is this going to be a continuation of Negroland? You know, I, I didn't want that. And I didn't want that more traditional kind of arc of childhood to a certain stance of wisdom or resignation or you know, triumph. I wanted partly because I felt with Negroland, very much with this book, that ability to change persona, change my position, um, to acknowledge that um, one was performing off times and that one played many, many roles, none of which were hypocritical, all of which the complexities of the life around one. Now I'm back to Negroland and this multi-layered world that I was in, in terms of class, race, you know, um, identities, the history of the time. I wanted to be able to take in all of that and a traditional memoir structure wasn't going to allow it. And partly because I also needed to change my relationship and my tone as I went along. And that was really what drove constructing a nervous system. You keep a great device, too, that you use to terrific affect in Negroland, which is you break the fourth wall a lot. And I really appreciate it. And there are a couple of points where you do it specifically in constructing. One is talking about memoir. And you say, remember, memoir is your present negotiating with versions of your past for a future you're willing to show up for. <laughs> Which is exactly what this book is. Because, it, again, as you just said, you don't need to do, here's Margot at age five. Here's Margot. I mean, those moments pop. 
but they're in the context of the music you're experiencing. Yes, exactly. Well, you know, I I realized I couldn't progress in Negroland until I simply said, acknowledged that A, I was fighting. I'd been raised to oppose, if you will, and avoid the confessional centrality of this very theatrical self. I'd been raised not to do those. And if you're a critic, that's also not what you're practicing. And that's not what you're expected to practice. I do honor that in terms of ways that criticism can train you to be deeply engaged with and to insist on being informed deeply about things that are not directly your passion, your concern. You're always in that way. Criticism is very, even the most traditional, which I've also done, tied to this book. So you are constantly finding almost new languages and new connections, forging new connections. You might forget it the next week, you know, but you did it. You found it and something of it stays with you. And it's interesting to me because Bing Crosby comes up in a way that... (laughs) Having read a lot of your work, I wouldn't have necessarily expected, but it makes sense for who he was at the time. In, yes, in those in, in that in that cultural culture. period. Yes, yes. Which Just, is really the first half, a little past, I forget when he died, of the whole damn 20th century. Okay. <laughs> Really, can we talk about Bing Crosby for a second? Because I have two experiences of Bing Crosby. One is him singing Little Drummer Boy with David Bowie. With David thinking, Bowie. I don't even understand what this is because I, no, I was so tiny. <laughs> and David Bowie says that he did it because his mother had loved Bing Crosby. <laughs> I believe it. But I there were the two of them as performers utterly committed mm-hmm. to yeah. a strange kind of inauthentic authenticity, right? And then there were the road pictures with Bob Hope, Hope. which when we were small, there were not a lot of television options. So you would occasionally get plunked at the babysitters. And I'm like, what did I do? Why am I doing this? I don't even understand. But so I know historically Bing Crosby is this huge figure in American pop culture, right? He's a musician. He's a movie star. He's Bing Crosby. He apparently was not a nice man which is one of the things that's kind of horrifyingly fascinating because the um, benevolence of the persona, that laid back, hello, Potter Familias, but also, you know, the boy next door who can play, you know, that was so intense and so acute. And so, but I first got really interested in him because, you know, I didn't give a damn about the road movies, particularly via his Paul Whiteman, jazz, loving, and getting credibility in those early years from loving and kind of listening to, and in the case of Big Spiderbeck, jamming with Spiderbeck early on, wet, on recognizing Armstrong's genius, recognizing Ethel Warner's genius. But at the same time, he is always, you hear it in his earliest recordings, the almost minstrel adaptation Less of black phrasing, which he does with a kind of musical truth telling, but the voice is definitely a legacy of that. Me, oh, I'm this white person rolling around these wild, you know, kind of guttural syllables and sounds in my mouth, and it makes me feel very good, and it's a lot of fun. Oh, those people. So that fascinated me too, this combination of something that was part of the history that, yes, complicated is nevertheless in certain fixed ways revolting, 
and this creature who was part of this hybrid and mulatto and race clashing and collaborating suddenly, modernism, American modernism. The most interesting white performers were all in some way engaged in that. But his ability, the power he had as a straight white man to just keep Okay, I'm a naughty boy doing menstrual. Oh, no, now, you know, <laughs> I'm a kind of paterfamilias crooner. Um, you know, I'm a reassuring symbol of the American culture that will show up in sitcoms in the 50s. He's ahead of the curve in all those ways. And the voice that was playful and able to move around quickly, rhythmically becomes more oleaginous. (laughs) All of that just fascinated me, as did, and not just in Bing, but in other performances, but I couldn't let go of him. You know, my repulsion, my distancing, my, oh, this is so cornball, you know. (laughs) Nevertheless, kept corralling him back into my little cultural wheelhouse. So that's when I began to think about, okay, what do I need from him racially? You know, what does he give me? And some of it is just the fascination of otherness, you know, even when it's nasty or unsettling. But the other thing that I realized is that for me, he does embody the performance of a kind of almost caricatured whiteness. And that's white minstrelsy. And I thought, well, let me find, let me assume a rather powerful position <laughs> in relationship to that. He's my toy. Let me kind of make him a toy, as well as a kind of revelation of one's sense of uh, what, in terms of race and gender, you're allowed and what you're not allowed. So I was able to be a bad girl in terms of being. But also yeah. his performance of masculinity, too. I mean, it was very specific to the era. It was very specific to his audience. He was aspirational for so many people. Exactly. Which, uh, in terms of the American masks of amiability, you know, you could take that line. D.H. Lawrence is about the basic American soul, and he is talking about the male American soul. He says, you know, all the other stuff, please. It's window dressing, all the sweetness and light. It's hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer. That in its own way, if one thinks of Bing's life and the contrast between the public persona and, you know, the, yeah, Howard Isolate, Stoic, <laughs> and the killer. American male amiability, <laughs> middle-class amiability. Oh. And the flip side of Bing, in many ways, is Ella Fitzgerald. Here she is. Her background is really tough, really, really tough. And she's also a model for Black womanhood in a way that we hadn't experienced. I mean... The fact that she would sweat on stage apparently was very disturbing to some people. And I'm like, but she's performing and she's in her zone, as it were. Yes, and she is admired and respected even by those who, and adored, even by those who who were disturbed, as I was as a girl, by the sweat. But that has so much to do, of course, with race mixed with class and gender. You know, Ella Fitzgerald's voice, the actual timbre and tone, and the songs that she drew on were in certain ways, as jazz was, they were a kind of bourgeois world. So we were not supposed to see, you know, the funky blues singers, they were, even though Ella actually can musically do blues very well, but we weren't supposed to see all that funky low down 
I'm a woman and I'm sweating the same way that Muddy Waters might. So then we moved into the codes of feminine behavior, which my Black bourgeoisie was deeply involved in. This had been mastering these codes and performing them beautifully had been considered, you know, (laughs) in certain ways as important as having a social conscience, you know, and as helping the race progress. That was seen in a way, not only as pleasurable and a sign of, of privilege, but as an achievement because of the kind of slime pit of stereotypes and degrading behavior towards Black women, all of which had been historically kind of put on to us. It's, this is who you are. We can't do any better. You know, so there is this fabulously talented Ella Fitzgerald. But I'm looking, even though I know perfectly well, she's very good, but she's not a genius in that way. You know, I'm looking at Lena Horne because that's a presentational female glamour model. And Ella is, you know, she's she's stout. She dresses well and she's shy, you know, so she doesn't step right into all that patter on the TV shows. Um, she's simply a musical genius, you know. Um, that's what she is. All of America recognizes her, but when she died, that's when I really started thinking about her. I suddenly saw in myself a certain kind of condescension. A Billy Holiday was so much more, you know emotionally profound and look at the life she lived, you know, as as if what we knew about this hard, in certain ways, tragic life helped, you know, those were her bona fides in fact, you know, the the narrative of the incandescent, destroyed and self-destroying woman. And Ella had none of that. In this way, you are a very typical girl of a certain era, particularly a typical black girl at a certain era, track this. And that allowed me, you know, track your uncertainty, your distress that here was a Black woman very nicely dressed who nevertheless was sweating the way working class Black women sweat and the way one feared one was always going to be seen as just about to do or, or is really finally best suited to doing. It was really the Bud Powell record that set me off because there he was sweating on the cover and that was glorious, you know. So then I moved to Ella and that was, it was an entry into trying to find a real intimacy with her life as well as her art, the life that she did not confide to the world. Intimacy that was not omniscient, that got her talent, that got the ways in which she was difficult to read, almost decorous. And that also, but could find finally the wildness of her art, hidden in certain ways in plain sight, always displayed musically, but performatively hidden in plain sight. I think too, one of the things that's so interesting as you read through Constructing a Nervous System are the pieces that you have to break through for your own sense of self. And the idea that you had to deconstruct all of these different iterations of Margot at different stages. Yes, yes, that's right. Via the art, which, yeah, I could argue that that's the growing up process, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But here on the page, everything is very deliberate. There's one chapter where... You go from Charlotte Bronte to Willa Cather to Sylvia Plath to Catherine Mansfield, Gertrude Ma Rainey, Scott (laughs) Fitzgerald, Marvin Gaye, and Sly Stone. And that's just one chapter. That's early in the book. And I can see, knowing what I know about each of those, that progression makes perfect sense to me. (laughs) Um, 
thank God. (laughs) You know, because the task and the terror for a writer is making those strange progressions, that space inhabited by all of this disparate stuff, making them make sense, not just for you, but placing them in such a way that the reader can either decide to go with and like a critic does, okay, I'm I'm decoding and I'm going with this arc or can be stimulated to invent their own chain of associations as they enter each one. This was also very much my way of, I'm so tired of the word reckoning, but um, of coming, of recognizing, let us say, and making use of this very heterodox, you know, start with race, (laughs) gender. You know, I grew up in the era where the canon was basically white males. And the Americans, even American white males were relatively new in that canon. In the course of my life, because history happened to put me there, you know, I got to college in the mid and late 60s. So all of these other political, social, aesthetic movements, racial, gender, sexual identity, feminist, they all came. And so I wanted to, but I also had to keep taking this stuff in. It's easy when you're young to take it in and by excluding the things that rightfully are being critiqued because they were pretending to be ubiquitous and universal. But the older I got, and particularly when I started writing criticism, I didn't want to dump that stuff. I had my my rights, you know, to engage with it as fully as any white, you know, male heterosexual who shared those qualities with the writers. And I had to keep thinking so or feeling my way through how, at least in terms of my sensibility, my temperament, they could be in conversation with each other. And they could cohabit without being opposed to each other at all points. <laughs> That's part of that track that you're finding. And then suddenly it's a lot of fun. It turns out you can find a way to put some, a Sylvia Plath line with a Ma Rainey line, and it works. <laughs> so. It absolutely works because these are all disparate pieces of American culture. Exactly. And I think that gets lost because we're so, and this might be a human thing where we just want to keep categorizing things. Every time we discover and acknowledge new parts of American culture, political, aesthetic, um, whatever, one impulse is to categorize it in a very fixed way and to make sure that what we're now calling the debris of earlier periods of the culture are cleared away. Well, some of that debris needs to be cleared away, but uh, <laughs> but not erased. It still needs to stay in our consciousness. And yeah. And this brings me to Willa Cather and Song of the Lark. You talk about struggling to teach this book. In the 70s, obviously, we'd had this moment where suddenly women writers were every, you know, no everywhere. Saying, and, and, and there were so many the women's bookstores. <laughs> everywhere. It, was, it was a different moment. It was a very different moment. But Willa Cather is Willa Cather. You're teaching Song of the Lark, and I'm just going to own it. I have not read as much Willa Cather as some. <laughs> Where did you grow up? Outside of Boston. So. Okay, see, um, you know, that little Midwestern thing keeps <laughs> driving one a bit towards. And again, this is the part in the book where you break the fourth wall and you say, reader, this is a procedural. And I really want to talk about this for a second, because the way you interrogate yourself and the way you interact with the art itself, the Willa Cather novel, Song of the Lark, but also the painting that kicks it off. Right. 
which some folks have used on different editions of the book. And then you're thinking about your students and how your students will respond to you as a black woman teaching an American classic by a white woman. Exactly. And the ways in which I refused to fully take in, I think. You know, it was there, but it wasn't activated. I refused to activate for several years of teaching this the problematics of her race, simplifications, stereotypings, dismissals. So if I was investigating myself as a critic, I had to investigate myself as a teacher. Well, I mean, what is canon at this point? I have a very nice life. I just had a similar version of this conversation with Viet Tan Nguyen. Whoa. Surprise winner. Yeah. But it is something I'm a little obsessive about because canon is such a powerful notion. It's true. It's difficult to completely fall out. It's not as difficult as it used to be to slip down. If, you know, we were talking about canon books, the way we might talk about, you know, sports teams, (laughs) whose rating is really, really plummeting, even though they're still going to be able to participate in the championships. Hemingway's an example of that. Norman Mailer um, is an example of that. But it is, and traditionally always has been, much harder to get in. And the only way, really, go up against that has been for each group to devise, present, recognize, lobby for, and declare its own canon. And to produce, to keep producing that work that we then call the tradition. That's what's happened over and over and over. And again, if you go back to early modernism, um, early 20, well, late 19th, even early 20th century, you see white Americans doing that for the American, basically white tradition compared to Europe, which is basically saying, oh, come on, you can be cute, you can be funny, but you're primitives. Yeah. And then they get, <laughs> they get that tradition going. And a lot of them are saying, well, no, okay, let me have some primitives of my own, these, these women of any race, these Black people, these people of color, these immigrants arriving, you know, we see all of them as really not having legacies um, that that we need to attend to. Do you still teach, Cather? I have taught a couple of critical essays of hers in my arts writing courses. One in particular where she's kind of impersonating. She's writing about an opera singer. She loves a woman and she's all but impersonating a male critic. And that's a lot of fun. There are other novels of hers that Mm -hmm. I teach much more. Would I teach Song of the Lark again? I might, depending on the course. Um, this was I was teaching her usually in a, in a course, I think I said, that had to do with American women, traditions of, <laughs> of innovation, of modernism in music, movies, and literature, and even dance. So, you know, Cather was also living on the syllabus with Ethel Waters, Billie Holiday, very, Martha Graham, various other people. But first of all, I'd have to have the right context. And I would only teach it really bringing in with a full concentration on, not exclusively concentration, but with a full concentration on these racial myth-making and you know, excluding portions of it. And, and I, that would be very much a part of you know, how I examined her sensibility, her intelligence, her tactics. 
her strategies as a writer and as a creator with a certain vision. Because that's one reason we taught the book of American culture and of an American woman artist. A large part of criticism has always been to give context to a piece of art, regardless of discipline, right? We're trying to fit it into the context of not just the art form, but the moment in time and the moment in our culture, or there are a million different pieces that we're trying to sort of parse. And I go back and forth on this too, but there are times where I feel like criticism has become less about the context, which was always the fun part to read, really, like in a great review of whatever it is, Mm. like the context was always a little... Yes, this the um, the literary, reward. the artistic, the social, the political. The assumptions of this time were, I mean, that's right. that's ponderous, but it was always very interesting. Readers assumed when they first saw that, yeah. And now I kind of feel like I'm getting a lot of synopses. And I feel like, I don't know if it's an assumption that we all share and we have... Hmm a lot of the context already, which feels very strange to me because given how we're sort of shot into a tiny million different little pieces because of social media, like- Tiny little cannon, (laughs) interest and identity, yes. Right? So there isn't the sort of, if you look at the 50s or the 60s or even into the 70s, 80s, 90s, you can argue there's a monoculture. There are certain television shows, there are certain pieces of music, there are certain movies that become moments that you can shorthand in- Everyone well, knows yes, it. And then, one you know, line from The Godfather, right? Yes, that's absolutely right. Now, I'm not sure it's ever been as common when you're talking mm. about what's called high culture or mm. experimental mm. culture in terms of mass culture, which includes parts of the book world. Yeah. You're teaching students how to write criticism and how to interpret criticism. Have we hit a turning point, though? Is there any going back? Is there any, are we just on a set of tracks that are taking us you know, I think it very much depends on mm-hmm. the medium, you know, mm-hmm. that, you're, that you're talking about. Where I would ask, though I wouldn't put you on the spot now, where are you seeing these synopses dominate you know, the more complicated, <laughs> critical expeditions into a text? It really does depend on who yeah. the newspaper, magazine, you know, online or in print is trying to reach, how they're trying to hold on to mm-hmm. or expand their audience. It certainly feels a synopsis without a lot of context. It's a kind of safe bid for a writer. Even in my own career, I can certainly remember those times, especially maybe with doing weekly books, but no, also with theater. When, okay, I ju- I, I'm not deeply engaged with this. I'm doing my best, but I'm not. Or I just got assigned to see something that I can cram, but I don't know much about the context. And so the safe way to unembarrassing literacy <laughs> is a synopsis and maybe some not so difficult opinions on the writer's voice, the actors, the playwright's way of using dialogue, that kind of thing. I think it's a safe haven, maybe at a time that one feels many, many writers feel, I don't, I can't, I quit. This stuff is overwhelming me, these, uh, just by number, and I have to be in some way. I was always terrified of being a dilettante as a reviewer. In a way, that's what a synopsis enforces, a kind of dilettantism, don't you think? 
It does, but that is just not a word I would ever use to describe you or your work. Well, you know, it's, when I was growing up, I was always jumping from, oh, I mean, I'm, I'm a good pianist. I'm going to be, oh, no, I want to be an actress. Oh, da, da, da. you know, and it felt a little, particularly as part of this female tradition of amateurism. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, how am I going to show? I'm, how am I going to prove to myself as well as others that I am a deeply serious person who will take hold of something? Um, and maybe that's also partly in this book. I'm showing you how this heterodox mix is not dilettantism, okay? Oh, it's really not. It's really not. <laughs> what brings you joy? That's a big question. Mm -hmm. um, I can count always um, a piece of art in any field, you know, any area. Some of them I know can bring me joy, right? You know, because they've been with me. Um, you know, that's press the button, you'll get joy. I know that if I'm venturing forth to some new form of art or entertainment, something will excite me. I can count on that. But the joy of finding, encountering something new in a piece of art. Beyond that, of course, the people one loves, hanging out with them. I like sort of veering from something that's very serious to being really shallow and obsessive, say, about makeup. You know, that's a lot of fun. <laughs> I used to love window shopping. It, <laughs> it's, it's hard now. Yeah. The counter to joy, I mean, the absolute opposite of it is the harsh, ugly predictability of what we're seeing in our political um, world global as well as national. This lockdown, what always brings one joy, at least anticipatory, is the sense that something surprising, something new can take place, right? Yeah, like constructing a nervous system. Oh, well, oh, you slipped very <laughs> deftly into that compliment. <laughs> but it's true. And I get to say that you're part of my nervous system and, and who I am oh. as a reader and who oh, I, I am I love as a bookseller, which is pretty cool. <laughs> So what's next I, for you? A friend and I, this is just, I'm not going to get really specific, but we, um, there are critical identity differences between us. We are of the same generation, which we were born like 47, 48. So we have lived through a number of crucial historical movements, periods, experiences. And so we are going to not using a joint voice. We are going to write a kind of cultural memoir. It would start basically in the 50s and move up and through. But definitely, again, not two people writing and creating an arc. It will be very much also about friendship because I'm also of that generation of women that created families out of friends and about aging, which one never thought about for many years and now must. <laughs> How that affects your sensibility, your receptivity, as well as your vanity. This is really good. It's a cultural history of being human. Oh, I like that. Trying it to is. Yeah. You're writing a cultural history of being human. I think this is kind of great. I'm very excited. Oh, yeah. I can be patient. You're always patient. No, you're not always patient. A bookseller no. can't be. No. Okay, I'll take uh -uh. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, I need to ask, what have you been teaching recently? Fiction isn't really quite the thing no, you've been focusing on I don't do that anymore. Lately. I really, when I began teaching full-time around 2006-7, I really plumbed onto essays, you know, because the essay form was taking off. And all the avid 
boldness that nonfiction writers were claiming. Um, yes, the memoir was also becoming popular, but it took me a long time, as you know, to get to the memoir. It was all this daring, and it was and it was nonfiction saying, you know, we have, we have license to do anything. So I took that into what people now call personal and lyric and cultural essays. I took that into um, arts writing and ways of pushing at the form. I wish I had a term other than criticism, which is a perfectly Yay. useful term, kind of like literary nonfiction, but a little, a little drab and passive. But I haven't found that yet. That's what I've been focused on. I think there's so much to be said for that. But again, it brings me back to the idea that criticism and autobiography are entwined. Absolutely. Um, one of the courses I, I've taught is a slightly clunky title, Arts Writing, Life Writing. Sometimes I put a slash, but it's because I want. And the writers that I teach and the students, the, pe the pieces I've done, I want them to really foreground and focus on and then shape and discipline the, those all the lines <laughs> that link all the nerve endings um, and chains of memory and thought and invention that link the so-called personal life to your life, the personal life of the critic and the personal life of the, of the person, the off-the-page person. How do they combine? How do they converse? How do they collaborate? I think anyone who picks up constructing a nervous system can at least see some of those lines. Thank you. <laughs> Margo Jefferson, this has been such a pleasure. I Me, really... well, we have had a good time. Yeah. Could we oh, do this again? I would just like to done. keep doing this all the time. Keep, <laughs> keep, keep the brain on its toes. That's what you do. Yes, we can do that. Keep I, the brain on point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, that would be because there's so much to talk about. I mean, constructing the nervous system, it is a relatively short book, but there's a lot and it's all great. It is all so so great. It's out now. Constructing a Nervous System by Margot Jefferson. Thank you again, Margot, for joining us. Oh, thank you. Hello, readers. Welcome back to another installment of the TBR Top Off, where we recommend titles to go along with today's featured book. I'm Mark, and I'm joined by my insanely well-read co-host, Margie. Hey, Margie, how are you? I'm excellent and always reading. Yes, perfect. <laughs> so today we are recommending titles to complement Constructing a Nervous System by Margot Jefferson. I am very stoked for this book. It seems like something that really has such a unique flavor and composition. Absolutely. Uh, it's going to be a hit. Margie, I think I'm going to have you start us off if you're cool with that. Yeah, let's do it. The first one that I thought of is called A Little Devil in America, and it's by Hanif Abdurraqib. The title of this National Book Award finalist from last year comes from Josephine Baker. Uh, she gave a speech during the 1963 March on Washington and said, I was a devil in other countries and I was a little devil in America, too. Taking a cue from these words... Abdurraqib presents a truly inspired collection of essays on how Black performance is inextricably woven through American culture. We hear about everything from the Rolling Stones to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, mid-century Paris to the moon, the March on Washington to Abdurraqib's own cramped living room in Columbus, Ohio. We hear about everything from dance marathons to the politics of American empire by way of Soul Train, Aretha Franklin, James Brown, Whitney Houston, Beyonce, and a slew of others whose specific performances 
in specific places and times have significance in small and large ways. So throughout these essays, you laugh, you may cry, you'll definitely get mad, and you will join in the celebration of Black performances that have left lasting impacts on society as a whole. And that is A Little Devil in America by Hanif Adurakib. Such a good pick. That book is excellent. It is such a, a rich, interesting experience. I chose a title that I think is just fantastic in general, but I think could sidle up on the same bookshelf um, as Constructing a Nervous System. And that is All That She Carried by Taya Miles. Oh, good one. Yeah, yeah. It's a book that chronicles essentially three generations of Black women through a specific heirloom called Ashley's Sack. Uh, This is a historical totem. It can be viewed at the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture. It is a cloth grain sack, basically, that Ashley, her enslaved mother, passed on to her. And she filled it with a couple of items, but specifically told her that she needed to fill it herself with love, always. The bag contained a tattered dress, handfuls of pecans, a braid of her mother's hair. And very soon after, Ashley was separated from her mother and enslaved herself and went through a lot of, as you can imagine, trials and tribulations in the South in the 1850s. However, Ashley's granddaughter, Ruth, was able to carry the stories of her lineage and this still intact heirloom and was able to provide Taya Miles with enough beautiful storytelling to really bring this generational tale to life. The book braids these women's stories together so beautifully, but it really just leans on the ways in which tradition, history, and familiar perseverance can last forever. I really recommend this title to any reader. And that is All That She Carried by Tanya Miles. That is so perfect because her book won the National Book Award last year. <laughs> yep. We are going with so, big ones, guys. We got award winners. Yes. Don't ever doubt us. Don't doubt our prowess. That's a good book. So I have one more. Uh, it is called Citizen, an American Lyric by Claudia Rankin. And this book is very hard to categorize, which made me think it might be a great companion to constructing a nervous system. It is shelved in poetry and it is poetry, but it's also like like a scrapbook. So it includes prose, scripts, photographs and artwork that present mounting racial aggression in the 21st century in daily life and across media coverage of sports, culture and current events. From slips of the tongue to overt violence, Rankin invites the reader to feel what being Black is like and to also confront our own biases and assumptions regarding so-called racial differences. There's no straightforward progression. It's a winding journey, but the overlying theme never changes. Until we all agree that racism is everyone's problem, works of art like this will be necessary. It is an extraordinarily powerful piece. It is filled with anger, with dismay, and with those flickering rays of hope that make you keep fighting. And in Grankin's case, to keep writing, which we are very, very grateful for. And again, that is called Citizen, an American Lyric by Claudia Rankin. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. Some great picks today, you guys. Indeed. So that's going to do it for today's TBR Top Off. 
Thank you all so much for listening to Port Over. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. And follow us at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my own Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati at BN Westchester or peek at me on Instagram at bookmark79. And my name is Margie. You can follow my home store at BN Northville. You can find me on Instagram at Margie Bookbrain. Thank you all so much for listening today. Happy reading and have a wonderful day. Happy reading. Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.